Welcome to our third edition of Authentic Learning. My guest today is Michael Boll. Michael leads the development and delivery of 21st Century Learning International's online professional development courses. 21st Century Learning was founded by educators with a mission to help teachers and schools develop best practices for education in today's world through consulting and hosting a variety of events that bring together educators, administrators, and parents from all over the world. They also host a variety of online professional development courses that you can find at 21c-learning.com. Michael is a passionate educator who loves helping students, educators, and parents harness the transformative powers of technology. He is also the co-founder and former board chair of an inclusive preschool, The Nest.Asia, and a highly experienced technology coach. He is an Apple Distinguished Educator, Google Certified Educator, and Co-Principal Investigator for the International Schools in Asia edition of the Horizon Report. Michael hosts a podcast himself that you can find at 21st Century Learning's website. So welcome, Michael. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm not used to being on this side of the microphone. I think it's a lot easier to be on your side. Do you want to switch real quick? Yeah, you can ask me questions. Because <laughs> I, I think I, we, yeah, we did a podcast together, a, gosh, a little over a year ago, I think. We did, yeah, and I so enjoyed it. You inspired me to do my own. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, or, or, or you're getting revenge. We'll see. We'll see. Okay, so Michael, uh, we, we titled the podcast Authentic Learning, so I, I would like to start and, and ask you, you know, how would you define authentic learning in today's world for, for our schools? It reminds me of a quote from a guy named Seth Godin, who's a marketing guru that a lot of uh, nerdy tech people, even though he's into marketing, uh, read and, 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 and listen to his ideas. And he says that if it's, you'll, you run towards art and you run away from work, and the more we can transform our work into art, the more we're going to embrace it. So to me, authentic learning is when a student is running towards it, when you're working with them and you have to kick them out. They're like, you know, it's like class is over, guys. You have to move on to the next thing and they won't leave. That to me is an example of when you see authentic learning happening, when the students are involved and they obviously some, see some sort of meaning within that. I mean, there's lots of different examples of it, but to me that's just sort of the feel that you have when you can check the box and say, there's some authentic learning going on here. Oh, that's a wonderful way to look at it, right? And that, that means that it can look different for anybody, and, and it should, right? Because I'm a big believer that authentic learning is something that comes from your own heart, something that comes from your own passion and, and you're really digging into. So I, that's a wonderful definition. And, and your focus through you know, a large part of your career has been on technology. So what do you think that technology's role is in, in promoting authentic education in today's world? Well, technology just, it lowers or eliminates in many cases the barriers, and it does that in a lot of different ways. I mean, essentially, technology has created this fantastic communication revolution that's happened all over the world. And our podcast, uh, the fact that we're talking, and you're in Bali and I'm in Bangkok, Thailand, uh, is, a, is a demonstration of that. So students can reach out and gather information from just about anywhere in the world. They can do that, just general research, whether they're just reading something on Wikipedia 
for example, they can gather data from people by asking them to fill out surveys. Uh, they can do podcasts like this. They can, and, and probably even more importantly, they can articulate information in a way they never could before. So a quick thing that comes to mind is uh, being able to make videos. So, you know, in our world, we're kind of think humans as humans, we're designed not so much to read, but to watch and to listen. Like it goes back to the old caveman days, you know, the person who didn't watch and listen got eaten by the lion. Uh, but that's where we gravitate to. And you'll see students today, they're always looking at what's on the latest YouTube or what's the latest music or whatever far more quickly than they'll read about something. And I think we're going to watch, or you're already seeing a transformation of information, articulation and communication going from the written form to the audio and the video form. And technology has made that super easy to do. You, you know, you have your phone, you have a computer again with iMovie or whatever program you're going to use. And students can quickly make something. Now, the reality is they can usually make something pretty terrible, and that's where you know, teaching comes in, where we say, here's how you structure a story and make things look good, and this is why writing is so important, and on, on, on. But ultimately, I think technology has lowered the barrier to make authentic learning opportunities uh, more possible. Interesting. And, and I wonder, you know, you say that, in it, and like you say, the way we're connected from Bangkok to Bali and the way students can connect with students from all over the world and dig into YouTube and get a better view of, of life all over the world and what it's really like for these people. Do you think that virtual reality has a potential in the classroom to help build a more empathic civilization, to help connect students even more? Um, and, and if you do, if you think virtual reality has a good potential in the classroom, how do you see it best being utilized? So, well, here a bit I show my age. So to me, well, there's two things. There's a virtual reality and then there's augmented reality. Virtual reality being, and I'm sure you know this, where you're immersed in it and you feel like you're there. And augmented reality being where information pops up on my glasses while I'm driving that tells me to go left or right or what speed I'm going. And But for a generational issue, for me, uh, virtual reality just generally makes me sick. <laughs> So when I try it on, it makes me sick. But that doesn't mean it's not a good thing. So I can think we were experimenting with some virtual reality last year in elementary school uh, with uh, Google Cardboard. And uh, the New York Times, for example, has tons of great virtual reality information. And so one of the more powerful things I noticed is I was reading about some issues in Syria, and it showed from a, a child's point of view uh, what their life was like and it, you could put these goggles on and you would listen to some music and it would guide you around and You would see the destruction that this child has seen at such a young age And you thought wow that is so powerful because suddenly I can empathize or feel or even continue to sympathize with, with what's going on But imagine that it is my world and then that's gonna change how I view it And it's gonna change the argument a little bit about what the impact is on war and other things like that But there, it goes on and on and on uh, but, for example, I think it just it has that power probably more than anything to create empathy like we had talked about just a minute ago. Sure. And, and to be honest, you know, I've heard of it being used to go into refugee camps and give students just a feel for what, what it's like to be in a refugee camp and be displaced like that. And I agree that that does seem like it has some potential to build empathy. But I've also heard of it being used to take children like say on a tour of the national parks in the united states into the forest and all that and while there's value in seeing some magnificent places you might not get to visit i feel that aspect of it for me takes away from like we'll, we'll just go outside even if you're in an urban environment there's a park somewhere and in that park mm -hmm. there are some ecosystems and let's go there instead let's let's make it a little more real yeah i think virtual reality is better than if the alternative is nothing then it's better 
So if it means no park at all, then it's better to do it virtually. But if you have a park next door, then you should be doing that. But you could do it with learning like you go places and like, for example, museums or things like that, that would be unreachable from where you are at. Or for my students to go to Bali and see what's going on with you guys. Like if I had a relationship my students did with your students and your students gave me a tour in a virtual way, I'd be like, wow, that's so great. And then suddenly I have this connection in a way that I didn't prior to that. So you're with 21st century learning, you're used to bringing educators together. If I'm all around the globe, you share best, best practices. Um, what do you feel are the most important educational practices to meet those needs? You mentioned earlier the importance of a student being immersed and not wanting to leave the project. But, but what are the best practices that we can do, pedagogical or curriculum-wise, to kind of help meet those students there and create that space for them? Well, I'm always a little nervous to say that I'm an expert in it, but one of the things that happens at the conferences we run is we have lots of people that, of course, come and present. Without them, there'd be no good conference. And you get to see the trends that are happening. And so in the beginning, the 21st Century Learning Conference of 20, 10 years ago was all about tech. And it was like, you got to have tech. There's these cool things called a laptop. And a lot of your schools should be laptop schools. And if you're not, you're terrible. And we got to teach all these kids these skills. Now these conferences really don't talk about technology that much at all. They talk a lot more about learning and what better ways there are to learn that obviously technology just helps assist with. And so the things that I'm th seeing a lot are, in, in, let's say, the last two years, first off is design thinking. So going through that process with, the, again, it's emphasis on empathy, which we've been talking a lot about here. But the idea is that you empathize with whatever the problem is that you're trying to solve. And not that you just go out and solve it. You try to solve it, and you test it, and you realize that you didn't do a very good job. And you go through the process again and again until there's a, a fit between the problem and the solution. Uh, something else I'm seeing is something called the mastery transcript. And I think when last year they talked about a little bit at the conference where you and I were together, where... Uh, it's hard to scale for a university. It's hard to scale what kids are doing in a way that universities can see it. So we do that today most commonly by using grades. Grades are easy to, to put together and to create a, a score, you know, a GPA, and that scales well and sends right out. But what we're seeing now in this one group is a mastery transcript where a university can look at a student within a minute or two know whether they hit that first 50% yes or 50% no. And then they can click buttons to drill down into examples of how the student has learned along the way. And that will allow them to have an actual, a much better informed idea of what the student is like and whether they would be a good fit for that school. Uh, I think we're seeing inclusion a lot more. So we're starting to see something that's been more common in, uh, the, in the U.S. and Canada, but not so common in international schools to have kids of all abilities, all the way from kids who have Down syndromes up to all the way up to the most advanced learner you have all together in one area, working together and helping each other out to make a better world. I mean, you're seeing you've seen this from here for a little while is the maker movement, which is back to that idea of, of design and building something and seeing how it works. And my days when I was in high school, that was called auto shop. And then they got rid of that because that wasn't a college type thing. And now it's all back. But, you know, you're, you're building and designing things more like they would at, say, Apple or something. Uh, I see project based learning is popular. And I think you guys do a lot of that kind of stuff where kids uh, work on something that becomes art to them, that becomes authentic learning to them, and they they see a goal in what they're doing rather than abstractly learning something and being told that 15 years from now, this is going to help you. You'll see, you'll see. And now I'm seeing also a lot of mindfulness uh, as being popular, and I think that is 
perhaps uh, in response to all the technology and all the options that we have, that it's so much, it's overwhelming, and that we're becoming so addicted to it all, we need just a break or at least a skill set that allows us to take breaks from it all. Yeah, those are really great takeaways. But I'll, just going back to where you mentioned the mastery transcripts, and, and that was one of my big takeaways from my visit to 21st Century Learning's last uh, conference in Bangkok. And I have talked to them, and as a school, we're, we're quite in line with that as well. We, we have a very big focus on skills. It's up front in our reports. It's up front in our parent conferences. Our students are talking about it, reflecting on their own mastery of the skills. And, and I do agree that that's a really big, important takeaway. Um, the project-based learning, of course. There's, there's a point I want to make on mindfulness that I really like, and it's going to lead to another question in just a moment. But, but we're big, as you know, at Green School on educating for sustainability. And all these takeaways that you just mentioned, I was noticing them at your conference as well. But when I sat on the panel with you, you had asked me to, to buy or sell whether I thought that schools five, ten years from now would all have a focus on educating for sustainability. Mm-hmm. And, and my answer was that I'm buying that because I feel like we need to buy that, that, that our complex systems in this world, be they our natural systems, our societal systems, our economic systems, and even so many personal health systems are not on a path towards sustainability. And we really need to give students the tools to, to think in systems like this and find their leverage points and steer them towards sustainability. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm so happy to see mindfulness into schools more often because I think it starts with your personal sustainability. You really, really have to understand yourself and how to keep yourself in optimum health and before you can branch out to your community, to your natural world, to getting involved with the bigger, larger, complex systems of the world. So for me, I, I hope mindfulness is one of these that has the traction and goes, goes further, which leads into my next question is of these you mentioned, you know, you said earlier that that for a while it was all about technology and everybody has to have a laptop and that's faded away, but maybe largely because most people have them now. Right, I'm that's why I think. Of these practices you mentioned, which do you see five years from now, ten years from now, having established big roots and just being a normal part of education rather than have faded away into the, oh, we tried that, it didn't work so great? Sure. Uh, well, a couple, like so, two kind of come to mind that are a bit opposite is uh, the mastery transcript concept, so that kids are working towards mastery and are expected to show evidence of that, that then can be transferred to later in life uh, as as proof that they've done something, and then they can move on to again, probably university is the best example uh, that they've done something that the university agrees says, wow, that's neat. And we want that to be part of our university, part of our university culture. So I think that is something that will continue. Um, I'm hopeful that inclusion will, that we'll talk in five years, and inclusion in international schools and other parts of the world will be normal, so you'll have kids at all levels. Now, I have a son with autism, so of course I'm biased, so I'm going to you know, want to always push for that. Um, I suspect that project-based learning will continue as well, and because it already has a lot of momentum with it. And I would give sustainability and i feel bad that i didn't mention it that should be something that will also be a big focus hopefully more so in the future problem i think with sustainability is it's hard right that's the other ones i listed are relatively easy like i can you know i can do a maker movement big deal that's easy in the classroom i can do project-based learning it's hard for me to get my entire school to switch to uh, a sustainable model and have that commitment. That is hard. And so things that are difficult like that are often what people will resist. And the scary thing, of course, with sustainability is that it, by the time you absolutely positively have to do it, because it's, otherwise it's going to be a life threat, 
it's already getting that much harder to do. So that's why I believe it's it's training training our students and ourselves to to think in systems, to think more big picture, to understand the interconnections and the unintended consequences. And I uh, I wanted to make a point on uh, inclusiveness. We found here at school at Green School that we're the more we mix our ages as well, like is besides all learner types and people from all over the world, we find that mixing our ages, getting our high school students working with primary students, our middle school students working with both high school and primary and early years and getting them together, a lot of magic happens. I, I feel the high school students feel really empowered and, and they're oh, caretakers of our younger students and our younger students feel a big part of a community that often at schools they can feel uh, ostracized from the older kids and mm-hmm. so I would add that in including the ages and mixing them up as much as possible uh, a really nice step in the inclusiveness yeah I mean if you look back like in our human history is we're we're tribal right and the old help the young to, to work out problems and they and we automatically just sort of enjoy that and, and when we look at our students we have in these international schools like the most talented kids in the world and to allow them to give them the opportunity to talk to younger kids and to mentor them how powerful is that sure so what do you see the future of of the school building and i won't say brick and mortar because we're bamboo and and it doesn't have to be brick and mortar but but you see micro schools popping up more across the United States. Homeschooling grows in momentum. So many more parents traveling the world with their students and, and just foregoing a school institution, so to speak, in a, in a building. What do you see as the, the most important role of an actual school as a, as a building, as a structure, as a place where students go five days a week, eight hours a day? Well, I mean, at its root, one of its most important aspects is its free daycare for parents so they can go to work. Right. I mean, that there is it does play that role. And then you want to make the best you can of it by creating an environment where kids can do lots of learning and whether that's going off to another place to do some of the learning and taking these fabulous field trips and meeting with other people and whatever. But ultimately, parents don't really have the luxury to take care of their kids because society isn't set up that way. It wasn't, you know, again, back in the old days, but it isn't today. We have to go out and do our jobs and make our money and whatever we're going to do and and move from there. So I think the idea of schools not existing in that where people come together to learn is probably not going to change. I think it, the smaller the school where you can create that culture and that sort of tribal thing where you work together to do things is more effective than a larger school ultimately, especially in the kind of learning that we're talking about. Now, a larger school has the economies of scale to have better gyms and better fields and better equipment, but then it's hard to get the high school kids to go hang out with the elementary kids. They'll do it like you know once a week, but it won't be something that naturally occurs because there just won't be those collisions between the two groups just hanging out together because they're in their own places. So I don't know. I don't know if I see the physical structure changing a whole lot. I I used to think perhaps that we could do a lot more learning online, and then I realized how horrible that is because, you know, most of our learning is actually interactions with each other in a physical sense, and that the online learning just helps that. That's all it does. It boosts it, but it is certainly not an alternative to it. Sure. You know, you you brought up a great point in that schools are ultimately a bit of a daycare for parents who need to work, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it got me thinking. The, another big takeaway I had from the 21st Century Learning Conference and that we really focus on here is that there was a trend toward connecting students to community projects going on quite a bit around the world. 
and I think this is wonderful because it takes us back to that tribal mentality when when kind of everybody helps take care of the young in the tribe. And so if we use our schools as a gathering place for our children and want to use that time effectively for them where they're learning how to contribute to society, then the more we can open those borders with communities around the school and around the world and get them connected, then I think the better service we're doing them and our entire world community. Well, maybe that's where virtual reality can come in, where I put on my glasses and I go to your school and hang out for the day sure. with, my, you know, with the people that I know and my friends, and I'm happy to see them and all that. And who knows? One day that'll happen. Maybe. Michael, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I look forward to having more with you, and uh, we appreciate all the work you're doing in education. Well, thank you, Glenn. It's been an honor to be here. 